Well, friends, if you are a guest with us this morning, whether online or in person, we hope that you have indeed felt warmly welcomed by our community, as warmly welcomed as you can feel uh, in this season of, of COVID transition. And just a little bit of a, an FYI for the, the month of July and through the month of August, instead of sort of launching into a new teaching series, we have decided to, uh, since it's, it's ordinary time in the liturgical calendar, we're spending a little bit of time following the lectionary readings. And if you did not grow up in a church community that, that acknowledged the lectionary, it's simply a three-year cycle of readings from the Old Testament and the New Testament that churches across the world and across theological and denominational tradition are invited to, to preach from and to include in our worship gatherings. And the gospel reading that we experienced this morning, um, read by Karina, that, that was the gospel reading for August 8th. And our, our, our message this morning is going to come again from the, the letter to the Ephesians. Last Sunday, we spent some time in Ephesians, and this Sunday we're going to stick with that text and with that stretch of, of writing. And we're going to be reading this morning from the fourth chapter into just the beginning of the fifth chapter. And just a little bit about Ephesians, if you're not familiar, it is written, it, tradition understands it to be written by the, the apostle and church planter, the apostle Paul. And there's varying opinion on that, whether it was written in Paul's name or whether he was the actual author. I speak of Ephesians and uh, of, the, of the writing as though Paul did, um, did write it, and I have, have some reasons for that if you ever want to talk about that. But um, this morning we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, and it's written from an individual named Paul to a, a first century church community, not not unlike Eastside, um, just imagine yourselves a long, long time ago in a land far away, and you got it. So with that, friends, if you're in the space with us, I invite you now to stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. For those online, I invite you to physically embody a posture of receptivity that allows you to receive and to hear sacred words. Paul writes, now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, they're alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They've lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. Surely you've heard about Christ and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your, your old self, corrupt, deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Instead, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so that they have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths 
Only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy and gracious God, creator, we come before you now in this space and we seek your presence among us. As I preach, God, I ask that you would take these words that I have prepared and that you would speak through them, make them be your word for your people in this time and speak in spite of me. And God, as I preach, I pray that the words of my mouth and and our collective meditations of, of all of our hearts across space and across time would indeed be found good, right, and pleasing in your sight. God, our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our savior, all of this, we pray in the strong name of the Christ Jesus, our Lord. And everyone said, amen. Friends, you may be seated. So as I spent time with our reading this morning, heading into this morning throughout the week, a question kept coming to me as I was reading it. And the question's really simple. It's just, what do I want? What do I want? it's 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 a question that fascinates me like from a psychological perspective, like what do people you know, really want? What are they after? And as I thought about this question, and hopefully it will become clearer as the message progresses, I also thought about the, the word need. What do I need? What do you need? What do we need? And, and we teach our youngsters that there's a difference, right, between our wants and our needs and to delineate between the two and to understand that they're not exactly always the same thing. And then I wanna muddy up the waters even a little bit more with two more words, one of them being must. What must I, fill in the blank. And then should, everybody's favorite word, what should I? Some of you have probably heard the phrase that it's not good to should all over people. I try not to do that in church when I, when I can avoid it. But I think the, the part of the reason I start this way is because you could read this passage this morning and if, if you give it a certain kind of, of reading through a certain kind of lens, you could feel like it's a very much so should type 
passage, where there's lots of shoulds being laid on top of this Ephesian community. But before we get to that, I want us to think real quickly about the difference between if someone were to say something like, you know, I really should go to the gym. And somebody else who maybe says, I must go to the gym. They're saying different things, right? One is indicating a value, a big picture value of their health and the need to, to go to the gym and to work out and to keep their heart healthy or whatever it may be. The, the must person, though, there's some sort of urgency behind that that, that sort of ups the ante. And, and maybe it's a, somebody who has their, 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 their wedding around the corner and they've got to continue to, to, to get in the right shape to fit into the suit or into the wedding dress. I don't know. Maybe there's somebody who, who has a big health checkup coming and they want to make sure that their cholesterol is as low as possible, so they want to hit the elliptical. But, but it is different to say, I really should go to the gym versus I have to go to the gym. I must. And as I was thinking about this, I started to think about Jesus, who gets referenced multiple times in a reading this morning, and I was thinking about him in terms of, did Jesus, was Jesus a happy guy? Have you ever thought about that? Have you wondered? Was Jesus like a happy person? Like, did he enjoy his life? Did he enjoy what he did? And what vocabulary would Jesus have used if he was describing himself? Would he have said things like, you know, I should go feed the 5,000. I should go heal the leper. I should. Would he say, like, I need to go engage in ministry. I need to teach my disciples. I need to teach people, this upside-down kingdom of God? Or Jesus self-reference with language like, I must. I have to go feed the 5,000. I have to go feed hungry people. I have to, to begin this ushering in of the kingdom of God into our world. Our language tells a lot about the place from which we come and how we relate to our lives and why we're doing what we do. And what I don't think Jesus would have done is, is to, to say something to the extent of, well, you know, I am, I, I am the Messiah and God's telling me to do these things, so I guess I should do them. And a Christ who's sort of like begrudgingly going through life, I guess I'll heal you and I suppose I can do this. But that's not the image of the Christ, of the Messiah that we're given. Instead, we're given the image of, of a human being who, who legitimately seems to be internally coherent. In other words, Jesus doesn't really seem to do a whole lot of things he doesn't want to do. I can think of one we actually referenced at the end of the text this morning. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prays and asks God that the cup may pass from him, but for the most part, if you look at the life of Jesus, he legitimately seems to be doing both 
really remarkable, hard, challenging things like establishing the powers that be, and he might even be kind of enjoying it a little bit, which is interesting. What do I want? What do I need? What must I do? What should I do? Does Jesus give us an image of a human who somehow was able to bring together what he legitimately felt called to do and at the same time, like what he actually wanted to do? Was he a human with so much internal alignment that he never had to fake it? His external behavior always matched what was inside of him. His words always matched what he actually meant. He, he never had to engage in theatrics because he was actually so fully and completely the real deal. He never did things begrudgingly. He never healed out of guilt or, or shame. He, he did these things because something inside of him bubbled up that he wanted to do it. Was the Christ a happy person? Ephesians chapter four, heading into verse five, it's an interesting part within the larger book of Ephesians. And I really, I really like Ephesians, but it, it's also tricky in some ways. And our reading this morning, it has some pretty strong language in it. And will I apologize because I started the reading a little bit earlier than the lectionary indicates because it's actually one whole literary unit and the lectionary, because the front end of this text is so challenging, they just kind of invite us to avoid it, but I think it's worth including because of the way that it actually sets up and relates to everything else. And I wanna begin by just noting that Paul, as he's writing to these Christians in Ephesus, he makes this reference to the Gentiles, right? Which just sounds like this huge like dismissive category of all these humans. And and it's important just to note that, that Paul's not actually referring to every single human being on planet Earth who's not Jewish. Though that sounds like, by the way it gets, it gets translated, that's kind of what it sounds like, because Gentile just means not Jewish, basically. But when Paul and others say the Gentiles, it's a little bit like when your grandmother said the pagans or something. You know, it's like, you think about like the worst like most rated R scenes from, I don't know, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but like something like that, right? Like sort of like depraved humanity or whatever. That's sort of what Paul's getting at. He's not just saying like everybody who's not Jewish, but he's saying like people who have sort of given themselves over to like hedonism and to just doing whatever the heck they wanna do and they've stopped trying altogether to be good humans. Like they're not even tempting anymore. They're just like out to eat, drink, be merry, and do whatever the heck they want to do. The Gentiles. And Paul says that on verse 31 and 32, he writes that unlike the Gentiles, those within the church are to put away from them all bitterness, wrath, anger, wrangling, slander, and malice. 
In 32, he says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. And as I was, and, and, I, and I read this particular verse, so there's a lot more of this dichotomy of like bad, bad stuff and then really good stuff. I read this one because it so packedly ties together this dichotomy, and it made me think of like, like a morality cage fight. You know, in the one, in the one corner, right, you have... You have wrath and anger, wrangling, slander, up against, together with malice, up against, be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving. And it's like, who's going to win at that cage fight, you know? Is, is kindheartedness and, and tenderheartedness going to have a chance against malice and anger? It doesn't seem even like a fair fight when you think about it, sort of in the way that it gets set up. And then it goes on and it becomes even more challenging at the beginning of chapter five when this, this oft-quoted but very much so often misunderstood verse, in it Paul says to be imitators of God, which, I don't know, I read that and it's hard for me not to shudder a little bit. It's a, it's a beautiful idea and, and one that, that I believe, but I think it's also so challenging that it can cause us to kind of take a step back and to wonder what, what's really going on here. Because to be asked to, to be imitators of God as, as humans, and humans who we often say things like, well, he's only human, or she's only human, we have kind of this like association with even the word human means kind of screwing things up or kind of barely making it along. Where, where, where Paul challenges this community of humans to be imitators of God, but, but that's kind of overwhelming because I'm not God and I don't have God's omnipotence and God's power and God's actual nature. So when God's imitating God or whatever, like when God's being God, God is being out of God's own self. But to ask me, a non-God, to imitate a God, that sounds really challenging, right? It'd be like asking um, a piglet from Winnie the Pooh to imitate Thor, you know? Like that doesn't, like how does that work? You couldn't like come up with two, you know, they're like different, <laughs> you know, but, but Paul says that we're to be imitators of God. How's that supposed to work? Oftentimes the way that it's been taught by the church, by Christians, is that we're essentially supposed to like, on the one hand, recognize that we're only human, but on the other hand, recognize that there's this sort of list of things that we're doing wrong, and we need to like white knuckle our way to acting better or to behaving better. And even if we're not actually more like God, at least we are acting more like God. I'm from the Midwest, and at least in the part of the Midwest that I was from, like this whole concept of like, you kind of work hard to a, 
a point that's a little obsessive in the Midwest. And if you have a challenge, sometimes it's not like the first thing to say, well, let's think about this and, and maybe like consider what we might do differently or how this, this might, you know, be shifted if we, if we applied some thought. And most of the time, it's just like apply more force to something and hope that that takes care of it. And I think sometimes we think about our spiritual lives in the same way, where we're unhappy with our behavior or we're unhappy with whatever we're doing. We should really get back to church or we should really get back to the gym. We should really get back into a core group or our Bible, whatever you may, whatever should you want. And, and we, we simply think to ourselves, well, we just need to like elbow grease. We need to apply all of our freestanding willpower that, that I was using to try to like do something else. I need to apply it in this direction now. But the problem is, and, and social, or, or psychologists are showing now that, that we can't maintain consistent and long-term change in our lives by just applying more force to something. We can change for a while. We can, we can overcome something for a bit, but just like pressing like the turbo button on your video game console, can you tell I play video games with my boys? The turbo always runs out. That's like the nature of the button. And I think sometimes we try to apply that same mentality to our spirituality because we read a passage like this one and we see these, this list like of kind-heartedness and forgiveness and not being bitter and not being angry and never going to bed without dealing with your anger and we're just like, man, I got a lot of work that I need to do. And we stop there. We stop with the good old-fashioned American hard work. We just need to double down and work harder and be better and, and change our behavior. But I think the, the reason that, the, that Paul sets the whole thing up the way that he does is because they knew in the first century as much as we know now that, that we ultimately, like who we are is gonna work its way out eventually. We can, we can change our external behavior for a time, sure. We can make ourselves do things we don't wanna do for a while. I've done it. I'm sure everyone in this room has done it. But that's not a long-term solution really to much of anything in your life. If you are, if you are in a work situation or in a friendship relationship, if you are in just imagine, like, can you imagine for the next however many decades having to just force yourself to do that thing or to be with that person? That's not, there's gotta be another way. And, and I think the same must be true with, with our work and our attempts to follow after the Christ, which is why I think that Paul says that we are to put on, put, put away our former way of life and, and to receive this new self that God has created, which is kind of metaphorical language, this sort of like putting off and then putting on thing. But I like it because I think that you can sort of shift your mind to, to today's world with this idea of, of putting off and putting on to the idea of like, somebody's walking around and they've been walking around for way too long in a really old pair of boots. And maybe they started wearing these boots when they were like six 
and now they're 13 and their feet have outgrown them and there's holes in the soles and their feet are actually bleeding, but they've been so long living in these boots that they don't even, they don't even feel the pain anymore. They don't even notice. They don't look at their feet. They got in the habit of not looking at their feet anymore because they so didn't like what they were seeing when they looked down, they're like, they just stopped looking altogether. And I think this, this is where Paul's speaking to the Gentiles. To like, to like, when we get to a point where it's so bad, we just are like, I'm not even gonna look. I don't even wanna know. I don't even wanna go there. And perhaps, what Paul's suggesting here is that the first, the first step in like the good news and the salvation of humanity is God's grace in us simply inviting us to like look down at our feet and see what's going on. Like, are we, have we way outgrown those shoes and are there holes in the soles and are our feet bleeding? And then maybe like, after we just begin to recognize like we're not doing what we want or what we need to do or what we ought to be doing. We're not even doing what we must be doing. We're, we're, we're just droning on. And I think at that point, then it's like this offer of grace, of gift, of like here's a new pair of running shoes from Big Peach that fit you perfectly. Put them on. Notice or remember, like, you don't know how to run. You've never run a marathon in your life. You've never had running shoes like this that fit your feet perfectly before. But, but maybe that's the beginning of the gift is just like take off the shoes that are causing your feet to swell and to bleed and, and put on these shoes that fit you and that have support and cushion. It doesn't mean you can run 24 miles. It, it just means that like, you can start walking without constantly doing more damage to yourself. I wonder if the beginning is simply waking up and recognizing that like, you're not getting what you want and that the old way is not getting anybody what you want. It's not getting what you need. But the Christ offers us something new. But it's not an overnight sort of success and it's not an overnight sort of all of a sudden tomorrow I can get up and just like imitate God perfectly or something. No, maybe tomorrow I can get up and like learn to walk in these new shoes without hurting myself. And maybe in a couple of days I can try jogging in these new shoes and Eventually, maybe I can work my way up to where I try running a half a mile and, and we'll see what happens after that. But it's this, it's this step-by-step process. It's never this sort of like overnight, all of the sudden, you're an Olympian who can completely and perfectly imitate the divine in your spiritual life. That's just not what this is. But I think a lot of times we get sold that bill of goods and because of that, we shrink back and we sort of, we sort of don't want anything to do with, with church or with religion because we feel like it's just, 
It's, it's the list. It's the list of, of all the behaviors and all the things that we're not doing right. And it's just sort of like adds to a feeling of shame, of inadequacy. Like, well, well, I went to church and I left feeling like I'm less okay than I was when I got there. I mean, that's not going to like empower a person to want to come back and to be a part of that, right? But what if the Christian life and following the Christ is a lot more like a gift? It's a gift of a new set of shoes, maybe a new set of clothes, and then it's a ton of grace for us to start walking and to start slowly but surely using our legs and our bodies and learning maybe to, to walk and then to jog and then to run without hurting ourselves further. Maybe this Ephesians text, another text like it, it's not about like, here's, here's the list of everything you're doing wrong, go home and fix yourself, good luck even though that's how I think a lot of us have heard it throughout the years. I don't think God would do that to us. Just like we wouldn't do that to our children. We wouldn't like make a huge list of everything they've done wrong and are doing wrong and, and hand it to them and say, here you go, five-year-old, fix yourself. We might want to do that, but we're not going to do that. Because it's not good parenting, and it's not loving, and it's, not, it's a bad strategy, frankly. And if, if, if I can see a name like, that's a bad strategy. Like, how much more can God see a name that's not going to work? Because at the end of the day, and here's the thing I want, want all of us to hear, is that is it really that hard for us to fathom the idea that, like, God is actually for you and, like, on your team and wants you to... to be whole and healthy and, and to live a human life that you want to live? It's not to say that God's gonna like be a genie in a bottle and give you everything you ask for. That's not, that's not at all what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is God's capacity to do this work inside of us, to change us so that these behaviors aren't things that we have to like think about to go do as much as we just start behaving different because we are becoming different. That's the good news. And the good news is that like, it doesn't come from us like conjuring it all up, but it's a gift that we just receive. And then it's a God who, just like a parent, has immense patience for their own child. God has patience with us. God doesn't need us to just tomorrow all of a sudden like, be perfect imitators of the divine. That's an absurd notion. No, God's just asking that you get up and walk, that you try, or, or just look down at your feet and recognize that what you've been doing isn't what you want to be doing, and it's not what you should be doing, and it's not what you need. You need to try a different way. And the Christ the whole way of the Christ, it's an offering to humanity of like, y'all have been trying it your way for quite a while. And look how well it's going. I mean, I wonder, does God not look at our world today with COVID and with everything? It's just like, how long are we gonna keep doing it our way and keep doubling down on the old way to do it and to be, to pit human against human and group against group and nation against nation politics against politics, it's just, it gets to a point of 
what does it take for us to look down at our feet and to recognize like we're hurting ourselves by the way that we're living and by the way that we're treating one another and, and by the way that we're operating. We need like a whole new way of being together. And that's what Jesus offered and it's what the Christ continues to offer us today. It's a transformation. It's not a to-do list of everything we're screwing up. It's, it's, it's like a new heart. It's a new spirit. It's a, he, he uses the language of the renewing of the spirit of your mind. It's this like transformation of your inward being so that like the old way is just less and less interesting and, and something new begins to sprout up inside of us. And believe it or not, as a person, you know, who, who maybe you've always hated, I'm, I've used running as the metaphor this morning, but you use whatever, you can actually get to a place where you started out hating running and then you don't mind it as much and then you actually like it. It can grow to a place where you desire that which is good for you and good for the world. And that's to completely flip the metaphor of what well, God's, not, God's not asking us to like begrudgingly embrace a way of being that will be depressing and sad, but that will at least allow us to be obedient to the list. No, God is inviting all of humanity into a completely different way of being that will actually be better, that will be more joyful, that will be more empowering. I remember when I would tell people over 10 years ago now that I was feeling called to plant a church, and then once, once it changed from feeling a call to, to the bishop, having asked and, and sent me to start a church over a decade ago now, and I would tell different people, and, and oftentimes it was, I'd get this sort of like deer in the head, headlights look when I would talk to people about it, and I think it's because they were like, so you're telling me you're gonna like start a Kmart next to a Walmart? is what you're wanting to do. Or like imagine like whatever fast food joint went out of business and you're gonna start that next to Chick-fil-A, right? It was just this idea of like, why, why would you do that? Like why would the bishop ask you to do something so awful? <laughs> you know, like isn't, and like just, isn't religion like kind of like passe? <laughs> and, and I remember receiving that from folks and, and just thinking to myself, like being fascinated almost by, by the fact that when I was being, being like interviewed by the, the church development committee, when somebody asked me like, if you were just independently wealthy and you could do anything you wanted to do, what would you do? And I'd say, right now, honestly, I would, I would set out to plant a church in, East, in, East, in, in Atlanta, because while lots have, have changed in the last 10 years, I have three kids now, I only had one kid back then. Man, life was simpler. But a lot has changed, but what hasn't changed is still my conviction and my belief and now my 10 years of experience that people actually experience resurrection and transformation through this. 
It's through this. It's not just through reading the next book or going to a seminar or somewhere, but like there's something spiritual and powerful and I don't know what the right word is, transcendent about, about the local church when the local church believes that it's about so much more than just kind of setting people on the right moral path or something to that effect. But it's, it's about, no, 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 we want to see the very hearts and souls of human beings come back to life. We want to see people come alive and want to be here now and want to live their life and do what they do. And we want to see alignment. We want to see people's passions come into alignment with what God is gifting them with. And, and for me in that season, God had just given me this passion to, to do this nutty thing that was by no stretch of the imagination easy at all. And I, I think that, you know, I believe in the miraculous simply because like I really, really wanted to plant a church. And of all the things, that's what I was set out and stubbornly set out to do and believed that I was supposed to do and was then given the opportunity to do that. And, and I think there's something to be said for, for God's work in us and for us to be willing and open to say like, all right, God, I don't necessarily want what I have for what I'm doing or how this is all working and I'm open to whatever this remix looks like. So start working on my heart. Start moving in me and, and, and shaking me and waking me up to at least look down at my feet and to wonder if I'm even wearing shoes that fit. And then we'll see what comes after that. And I hope and I pray that in the next 10 years, this can continue to be a safe space for people to gather to do that work together in community with one another. To say like, what is the next right thing? How do I need pushed and challenged? How do, how do I need a community of other people that are asking really important questions right now that help, help me feel safe to ask questions? People, friends, have been radically transformed and moved and reset and resurrected and changed through the work of local churches just like Eastside and through this church, Eastside. And that is to be celebrated. That is a beautiful thing. And I give, I give glory to God for what has come over the last 10 years and I look forward to what is to come. And as I said at the outside, said if you came in late, we... We postponed the, the celebration that we were gonna do today after worship and because of COVID and because of the Delta and, and what's going on even in our own city with case numbers. And instead we're going to, we're still gonna to look to the future to have a, a day of some type where we can have a huge celebration, but we're also gonna to try to enter a season of celebration in September where we lift up and celebrate some of the work that's been done for the last 10 years at Eastside. And we invite you to experience that with us and to participate in that as God leads you to do so. So friends, may we continue to grow and to build a beautiful, safe, loving community where people can come alive, where people can align their, their want with their need, with their should, with their might.
In the name of God, the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer, everyone said, amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.